Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me today on the programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day in the capital is Amy Burton. Amy is the director of the Nook Cocktail Bar, an establishment located in Weymouth, Dorset. Amy, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Hi Scott, really good to speak to you. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Amy. Um, normally on this programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership, but just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life in so many different industries. And with yourselves being in hospitality, I'm intrigued to understand just to what extent it's affected you and your operations. I mean, I've been in the hospitality industry um, sort of starting off, you know, bartending, moving my way up um, the professional career ladder within hospitality to management and then finally the end goal of owning my own business. Um, and there's been many challenges throughout the years, but this is without a doubt the biggest hurdle, you know, the, the, the biggest professional and personal challenge that I've ever gone through within hospitality and you know, especially my current role as an, an owner. And just thinking about how this has affected um, hospitality during the lockdown period, even if we fast forward one or two years to a point where hopefully there's a working vaccine and COVID-19 is no longer an issue, what we are seeing during this time, even with reduced capacity, is also less consumer confidence, aren't we? And still a little bit of anxiety about venturing out into venues and really spending time and money there just because of the risk of contracting the virus. Even when the virus is no longer a problem, do you think that there'll still be that issue in the industry and it could still take time to pick up again and there may be something of a COVID hangover for some time to come? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are many, many challenges sort of going on at the moment and there are certainly many ahead for the hospitality industry um, in the future, sort of in terms of navigating COVID and consumer confidence and, you know, where where this is going to, where this will lead. Um, We have a bit of a unique situation Story here at the Nook. We 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 closed. We we had enforced closure in March, um, and we straight away launched a home delivery service for our cocktails. So we were delivering to people at home, and what we really saw was that people, you know, they want to drink, they want the they want the cocktail experience, they want to support their local bars and pubs. But obviously, with not being able to go out, they supported us via home delivery service, which was fantastic. Um, Coming forward to reopening on the fourth of July, people do want. People did come out. They did support us. They did return to venue. Um, we had lots of COVID compliant measures in place with the social distancing between tables, um, the one way systems, complete table service, so no standing at the bar. But there's definitely an overwhelming feeling that there is a lack of confidence ongoing, and there definitely will be in the future. People are just mm. not sure, and I think there's some you know, disparity with some of the the 
the advice coming out of government um, with the as to the group sizes, and there's been a sharp change recently with the closure being moved back to ten o'clock. I think this all sends very mixed messages about you know if it's safe to come back out into hospitality, if it's not, and sort of how do people act? And yeah, there's definitely some some challenges ahead for for where that's going to go. And I suppose for having to lead a business within the industry, it's been a significant challenge over the last few months, just because you've had to constantly be adapting to changing guidelines and changing circumstances, very much with a little notice as well. Yeah, I would definitely say that, that, you know, in terms of leadership, it's been very, very hard, you know, not just on a practical level, having to adapt. And like you say, a lot, you know, adapt very quickly last minute. But also sort of keeping positive when you're in business and you have the financial worries of how you're going to get through this, you know, it's hard to, to keep upbeat and hard to keep the team upbeat. And mm. I'd say that and keep them upbeat, you know, and there's been a lot of isolation in lockdown. Um, there's mental health is a consideration. I mean, mental health is always a consideration mm-hmm. throughout um, the bar industry. Um, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of young sort of, um, bartenders here that you know they burn the candle at both ends they have a great social life sort of when we're we're not in the midst of a covid pandemic and you know get they have late night shifts so keeping on top of their sort of emotional well-being can be challenging at you know the best of times sort of normal times making sure they're eating healthy making sure that they're they're you know they're on top of their sleep um you know they're they're not you know doing too much at at work or on the social side of things but in a COVID pandemic with the isolation involved and the uncertainty it's not only hard keeping yourself upbeat and motivated but also keeping sort of the team team upbeat as well. Mm. It is difficult because mental health and well-being is such an important part of leadership there I think um, you're absolutely right and when you are dealing with challenges and I'm not necessarily just thinking of COVID-19 here I'm thinking sort of any challenge that might sort of come up in the everyday environment of running the business how is it that you sort of mentally steel yourself to deal with those obstacles as and when they do come along? Yeah we, we usually we, we have lots of um we have team briefs at the beginning of every single every single shift, and that's very sort of COVID focused, sort of making sure we're compliant. Um, it's a general, yeah, come on, guys, we can get through this. And then at the end, it's, it's a debrief as well. How's it gone? What are the issues? But I suppose in terms of preparing for those briefs and, and debriefs, it's really focusing on the good times and this. This, you know, this this attitude that this this will go back to normal, whatever type of mm. normal, new normal that may be. But you know, we've had some great times even during the pandemic, where we, despite being closed or operating at a re- reduced capacity, we've still had some great interactions with our customers and a, a lot of great feedback about how you know the industry as a whole is coping and adapting. And and yeah, I suppose just really drawing on past positives and past you know really great moments in the bar and you know past achievements is is really what propels you to to keep Mm. focused and just concentrate on the end game of just getting through this really 
it's interesting that you do mention that word sort of resilience because that is something which business has really showed during this time and it is one of the few positives to come out of this whole thing and I can imagine that for the likes of yourselves you've probably learned a lot during this period of time not just about yourself and your business but also the people that are central to that business and how they've sort of stood up to the plate and applied themselves to. Yeah, I mean, we're really, really lucky. Like I mentioned earlier, we launched a home delivery service um, straight off the bat, really. So we could continue just getting a little bit of what we do still out to our customers and still engage with our customers. And, and it, you know, not just to hopefully cover costs and, and keep, you know, our staff and employment, um, just just to keep our profile up there and keep our name out there and keep us sort of fresh in people's, people's minds. Um, but... But yeah, we we were really lucky. Um, we we did a home delivery service, and we've we've been nationally recognised for that. So we just last week we've um, won the business continuity category for the Great British Pub Awards, um, which had a um, a prize a prize fund or a, a grant a grant system in place from Coca Cola, which was specifically to recognise businesses that had you know been resilient throughout COVID and continue to operate at some capacity and deliver a service and yeah we've we were really lucky that we've been awarded a grant from coca-cola of mm. ten thousand pounds so so yeah that's um that's a, that's just a, a it's, it's just paid off really that resilience and mm. i know not everyone is in that sort of that boat where there's a financial reward at the end of it but i do think sort of just having that team in place and you know just keeping going you know, it pays dividends. It certainly does. And that's really encouraging to sort of hear that some rewards have been reaped as a result of that resilience that could help the the business sort of see through this uh, next few months. I suppose that this was a challenge this year that you never would have seen coming when you started out within the uh, the industry. Um, but if you could actually go back to sort of your fledgling days in the sector, Amy, before you sort of launched the business, based on the knowledge that you have now, is there anything that you would tell the younger you to do differently? I really don't know. Potentially get into another line of work. No, definitely not. Um, I've had a, you know, I've had a great run of it and, and working, there's nothing quite like working for yourself. You you, you 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 have an idea and you have an ability to implement it very quickly and you know some ideas take off and you you know if they work you get to see the rewards of that very quickly and that's a great feeling some ideas don't work I've had a you know a couple of real rotters over the years um, and and that's just a learning curve you, you learn mm. from those some ideas work some ideas don't but I definitely just would tell my younger self, just just get get on that ladder as soon as you just get on that ladder to to get get in your own business as, as quick as you can really um try and work for an equal amount of um independence to to branded companies just to get that good that good mix of of what you know both have to offer and both both offer different things and both you know help your you know shape you as you know in your in your your ownership role eventually but yeah just just keep focused and, and just yeah work hard it's great that you mentioned the l word there learning just because i think running a business and leadership in itself is a constant learning process we are never a finished product in 
our role wherever we are at that point in time in running a business and a lot of it is essentially just trial and error and there will always be challenges which we have to sort of take on head on we're not quite sure whether one thing's going to work but we just have to take the plunge and just do it anyway yeah 100% i mean for i mean we're we're a small business and you know we're not a brand we're completely independent and i've been working for myself for you know in this role for, for 8 years now and the biggest challenge for me is, is continued learning, you know, because we're not within a brand, you, you're not on the courses, you you don't have, you know, up-tier management sort of giving you guidance and telling you what to do. So for me, it's it, especially in times like this, it, it's how do you keep learning and how do you know you're on the right path? And I suppose that's just keeping yourself as clued up as possible, sort of continuing to read around your topic um you know just just do a lot of your own learning and keeping yourself applied and and interested in in what it is you do because that's the biggest challenge how do you continue to to grow when you know you're in charge of yourself but I'd like to think that I'm still doing that every day I'm learning a lot from customers and the team that you know I work with but yeah just hopefully I'll continue to to grow, but yeah, this has been a huge challenge, and um, yeah, we, we, but we're getting through it. Mm. The main thing, absolutely. And thinking about the future, just before we do wrap things up on the program, I would like to talk about that in a little bit more depth, just because we know that we're going to be in this probably for the long haul. Um, yet um, this uh, COVID-19 situation purely because last week of course the Prime Minister announced that there will be new national restrictions that have come in. You mentioned of course that the, the curfew of 10pm to 5am uh, where hospitality businesses now have to close and that's had a significant impact on the uh, the sector too. Um, so over this next few months what is it business-wise that you're really hoping to achieve? And indeed, this time in 12 months, where do you see yourselves being as we sort of keep grappling with this new normal and hopefully overcome this challenge of COVID-19? I mean, for the next few months, we're, we're in a seasonal town and that is, we're, we're coming into the most challenging time for us anyway, going into the, what's called the shoulder months, the winter months of the season. So, you know, it's a double whammy, really. Not only have we had a lot of hours um, taken off of our normal trading uh, trading time with the 10 p.m. closure. We'd normally close around 2 a.m. Um, we're, we're also coming to these these shoulder months, which are you know financially very hard anyway. So for us, it's all about just battening down the hatches, really making the most of when we are open, um, launching our own sort of drink out to help out. Um, offer during the weekdays on cocktails, which is a bit of a parody of the, the eat out to help out, but just encouraging people to spread their drinking habits throughout the week. So, you know, not cramming it into a Friday and Saturday night, maybe, but just coming and enjoying an early evening cocktail on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, because there's a bit of a um, an incentive there and offer. So, yeah, it's just keeping keeping people interested, keeping our guests interested. Um, keeping compliant is keeping everybody safe is a huge one but also tightening up that sort of those financial reins making sure that we're you know we're as streamlined as possible in everything we do in terms of uh stock and labor it's it's it's, it's, it is it is a challenge anyway going into the winter months but sort of the reduced hours it's going to be doubly hard but yeah just in a way battening down the hatches um, continuing to do what we do safely, 
Um, and then just hoping that the virus subsides. Um, and yet we will be trading like this for a long time to come with the social distancing, the one-way systems, uh, face masks when traveling through um, the venue. But I suppose it's all about just continuing to um, build on guest confidence, really. Um, just when they come into venue, just making sure that you very clearly have your, your standards in place in terms of COVID compliance and, you know, making that very obvious. And just hopefully people will continue to come out. They'll continue to support pubs and bars. And, and yeah, it will just slowly rebuild to some sort of normal over, you know, however many months ahead this goes on for. And like you say, it's, it's going to be a mm. long time. Let's certainly hope we start to see things reverting to some sort of normality before too long, for sure, because it's certainly something that the industry needs. And just given how many variables there still are in this and also just how enlightening it's been having you join us today, Amy, I think it would be fantastic at some point in this next year to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along and we can assess just how far the sector has come. Yeah, I would absolutely love to come back on and, and, and talk about, you know, hopefully bit of a brighter future ahead. Let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share at that point in time. And also, Amy, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on in the meantime. You too. Thanks for having me. I'd also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Amy Burton onto the programme today, director of the Nook Cocktail Bar in Weymouth. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have Mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget, and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
are also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.